Um, so section three, why listen? The wise person heeds the warning gained from past mistakes and godly counselors. Uh, this week's lesson is uh, very timely given the nonsense going on in our world as we are trying to erase history rather than embrace it and learn from it. So we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapters 4, 13 through 16, and chapters 5, 1 to 7. As we come to this, uh, I want to remind us that Ecclesiastes is a poetical book that Solomon is writing in order to give the reader the benefit of his wisdom at the end of his life. So this is one of those memoirs, if you will, you know. I've done everything, I've lived life, and here's what happened. And he is building to a point. So when you read this book of Ecclesiastes, you really can't stop at the different spots because he's using them in order to build to the point that he's going to make at the end, which we'll get to in another week or two. Um, so these are, these are, this is the proof of his main thesis in the book. Uh, so I want to remind us of that as we do it, because sometimes people will land on something and take it, and it's not in the context, they'll take it out of context of, Solomon's point, which ultimately is that the whole duty of man is to worship God. Worship God. Yeah, th th that's the whole point. Every other thing is a good thing in here. He talks about, you know, this is a good thing. Last week we talked about how we're supposed to enjoy the works of our hands and the labor of our days and all that. That's a good thing. And the hedonist takes it and runs with it. Yeah, so you should enjoy all these things. But that, it's got to be in the context of worshiping God. God gave us those things. He gave you that job. He gave you that money. He gave you that house and all that. And it's a good thing. Enjoy it. He wanted you to enjoy it. He didn't give it to you so you'd be miserable about it and all that. So as we come to this one, we're looking at um, history and stuff. What lessons do we learn from history? mistakes and failures. Sure. And things that worked. We learn that things work. You ever think about some of the things that we do? And think about, okay, who in their right mind did that? We talked about this before. <laughs> yeah. You know, whoever decided to, to milk a um, cow, and then whoever decided to let it sit out and curdle, and then who decided to squeeze that and turn it into cheese? I mean, just the, the whole process of developing cheese or, uh, or other things, yeah. um, foods that we eat. I mean, it's one thing to kill an animal and roast it over fire. Okay, mm. that makes sense. <laughs> unless you're a vegetarian. Well, unless you're a vegetarian. Yeah, he did. <laughs> well, back then, they were pretty much all hunter Yeah, but uh, who did, you know, how did they decide what grains? I mean, yeah. think about it. Rice. You take rice and you dry it and you boil it and eat it. Wheat, though, we grind up and we made bread out of it. Now, I know that there's mush and you can boil wheat and, and make a, a mush to eat and all that, but how did we develop? I mean, so history, trial, we, and we learn, trial and error. We learn from the past, and if we don't pay attention from the past, we're going to lose out. And we've had a long time to experiment. Right. I mean, all science is built on previous science, whether failures or completions. I mean, Edison said that, you know, he, he made a thousand light bulbs that didn't work. So he knew a thousand ways not to make a light bulb before he found the one that worked. Um, th these sort of things. Now, there are lessons that we can only learn from history. And what, would those, what, what examples are those? Philosophical issues. You can only learn how they play out from history, right? 
a system of government, a system of economics, those sorts of things take your, the whole argument right now with the vaccine. We know that you need years of watching what happens with people uh, to see what the response is, what, what chance, we can only learn that from history by watching and looking at, because these systems or these ideas, these concepts don't develop overnight. Uh, and so you can't learn except from history some of these. All right, so as we look at this, let's keep those things in mind and we'll uh, jump in and look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter <coughs> 4, 13 through 16. Somebody go ahead and read that. <coughs> Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take mourning. The youth may have come from prison to kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. All right, so... That phrase, chasing after the wind, Solomon's going to use it over and over again. It's an idiom. What does it mean? Something you'll never grasp. Yeah, something you'll never grasp. It's futile. Um, it doesn't, you can't really do it. Uh, that sort of thing. So he's saying here... Um, that we, we've struggled with 
is getting a small group ministry going. But the problem is, is the younger generations view small groups very differently than my generation does. You know, small groups for me means, you know, five, six families get together and meet at somebody's house, have coffee and donuts, and you do a Bible study, and that's a small group. Well, they don't see it that way. Everything nowadays is, is uh, generated online. They, they view small groups as a community, a closed community online, and they spend all day chatting with each other through text or whatever app it is that they want. They, I mean, they, they probably communicate more than we ever did in the small group we were in. You know, it was once a week you got together. You might have a phone call or an email during the week, maybe with somebody, but they'll have running conversations all day long with the whole group about whatever's happening in the news, something that's happening with their kids, or whatever. It's, it's a whole new model with a whole new thing. And they don't get together to do it. They, one of the things we found is they like to watch the videos, like the, the um, Right Now Media thing that we just did. They'll do a Bible study there, but they don't get together and watch it. They watch it and then they talk about it with each other, usually in chat sessions online or when they get together or, or whatever else. But they don't, they, everybody coming together at the same time is not normal anymore. People's lives are too disjointed that, you know, it's, we don't live in a community that everybody's kind of on the same schedule. I mean, think about it. When you guys were back in the younger days, you know, you lived in town and everybody worked for the same factory or one of the factories there. You, you had the same schedules and stuff. But now people are on all kinds of schedules. You know, they work for a company that's in Shanghai. So they're up in the middle of the night or the West Coast. And so their hours are later because they're doing businesses online. And stuff. Things change. A lot of people don't go in the office anymore. So they're not doing 9 to 5 or 8 to 4 or whatever. Um, and they work whenever it suits them because they work from home. You know, as long as they get the work done, they, the office doesn't care what hours you keep. Um, and so everything in society has changed in that. So now we're looking at this going, okay, what does that do? So if you have an old foolish leader who says, no, the only way to do it is this. Everybody shows up at the church on a Wednesday night. We have group then, and that's it. Well, what happens to those who don't can't do that? old and foolish rules, yet we lose touch. <coughs> but I know I'm an old foolish ruler. I, I get that. <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> but the idea, we just had a conversation with our son last night. Mm -hmm. They get so busy, there's almost not no any time to shoes, horseshoe anything in to make a change. Oh, sure, sure. And that that's, yeah. that, that's but see, he's becoming the old foolish Ruler, he's still calling me old and foolish. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, you're yeah. ancient and foolish. <laughs> Your son is becoming the old foolish ruler because he can't change what he's doing. There's no new thing, and it'll be the next. See, that's the problem. Our, even our kids get old, don't they? <laughs> and, and yeah, see, it's uh, everything just keeps sliding along. We're always behind. He's now over forty. <laughs> yeah, he's not. Yeah, he's he's young from us, but not not the up and coming generation. Yeah, and you think that you were doing it that age? I don't know if I would have thought. <laughs> I don't really remember that far a while ago, right? Raising him <laughs> or them. Old foolish rulers lose touch. Then you have the wise youth that replaces them, and unfortunately. The 60s bred such tumult in our societies that we no longer look at youths, youths, youth, we no longer look at youth and think of them as wives. <laughs> we, we don't. It, the, 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 whole, the whole uproar of the 60s put a bad taste in America's mouth about <coughs> Just look at Congress. How many young people are there? Young person comes up to be elected, try to get elected somewhere. 
Well, they're young. What could they possibly? We have a mentality that we, we throw this out. And so that's why we've got so many 80-year-olds in Congress. We don't trust the youth anymore because of what happened through the 60s. We, we've done that. And I, I can tell you from working in churches, you get a young guy who wants to be the, the senior pastor. Oh, yeah, he, no, he needs to. And it's become that they've got to climb the corporate church ladder, you know. Well, they need to spend some time as the youth pastor and all that. <coughs> we, we had a guy. He wasn't gifted with youth. So does that make him, make him a bad pastor? No. He was gifted at teaching and preaching and caring for adults and all that. But he just never really connected with teenagers. A lot of people don't. But we've, we've created this system. Well, you've got to spend a, a, a decade working with teenagers. And then you can be the assistant or the associate pastor for a while. And then when you hit about 60, you'll be ready to be the senior pastor. No, that's a, this is what happens. And guys get tired of waiting. The younger guys get tired of waiting for their chance because they have so much to offer and they, they see what they want to do. But, well, no, you're too young for that. You don't understand. And all that. And yeah, there's a learning curve. But we, we despise the wisdom of youth but that wasn't always the case. I mean, if you go back to the builders, those who fought in World War II, they built their businesses and they couldn't wait to turn them over to their children uh, because they could retire. The idea that they retired wasn't that they had enough money to retire. It was that they had a legacy to leave their children and that they could just be available and all that. Now we work until almost the time we die because we don't want to give it up, and you know I can't leave this to my kid. He'll mess it up, <laughs> and, and all that. We, we've got to, we, our whole perspective has changed. It used to be that retirement came when you were older, and, and you had the business going well, and you would leave it to your kid, and you, you would just you know just be around, and you would enjoy them, and you would enjoy your grandchildren while he's driving the business away. You would be there for the family, and all. We we've lost all that. And that was part of what created the tumult of the 60s, uh, as they weren't they, they were turning these businesses over, and they didn't know, they didn't know and didn't care how they were run and stuff. But we've so now we don't look at that. But the wisdom of youth is that they're not stuck in that rut. What is the um, when we talk about this? There, there's a uh, a quality in people. There's a quality in youth, or at least there used to be a quality in youth that is what made them wise. What quality is that? Vision, Vision? honesty. Honesty. Okay. Those things. are those are those are good. Not they're they're part of what I'm looking for. Discernment. Discernment is, it, but that's part of it. You're you're like beating around it. Integrity. Integrity is part of it. How about hope or dreaming? Okay, that's really good. Um, I hadn't considered that, but not, not quite where I'm looking. They're searching for knowledge. Searching for knowledge? Hmm. Oh, I guess they're like, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> that. Being a visionary? No. Hmm. They were teachable. Oh. Yeah. Now, that's... The hallmark of, of youth is, is that they tend to be teachable. Now, We've got we we're looking at the youth today. And they're not teachable. And they're not teachable. <laughs> but that's not because they're not teachable, it's because they were teachable and we turned them over to people who to made the them teachers. unteachable. <laughs> they went to the colleges and they got a dose of the liberal yes. yeah. liberal nonsense Amen. that told them that you don't want to be teachable. You want to do it our way. That mm. your parents, your conservative friends, they're wrong. Mm. Don't listen to them. We've made them unteachable. How many seen the commercial, don't be like your parents, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right? Exactly. And so we've made them unteachable. But that's because we want, the, the, well, at least the, the mantra is to make them like everybody else. They want cookie cutters. That's what socialism is. Everybody's the same. We're all equal. What do we think about, though, with unteachable people? That they're stubborn. They're stubborn. Arrogant. Arrogant. Un 
unchanging. Unchanging. That would be me. I'm a lot of the unchanging part. <laughs> Rigid. We, huh? Rigid. Close-minded. Close-minded. Do we like unteachable people? No. no. Do we like to work for unteachable people? No. no. Do we like to be ruled by unteachable people? No. no. What about church leaders? Really? We, the church seems to be one of those places that leadership that's unteachable, that doesn't change anything, they keep it the same forever, is the one place we do like it, isn't it? We have to do hymns. We, we need to sing the hymns. Get rid of this lousy new music, right? We can't change the choir robes. We've always had choir robes. Why, why would we get rid of these choir robes? Tradition. And, right. Church is full of tradition. We, we can't change the way. So an unteachable person does well in the church, doesn't it? Just, I mean, if you, if you know anything of the Orthodox churches, whether it's Catholic, Greek, Russian, whatever, they have not changed a whole heck of a lot in hundreds of years because they're unteachable. But they want the unteachable there. It's funny. And as we come to evangelical churches, there are a lot of churches that are that way too. They, they don't want to change, and they don't want to learn. It's why so many churches don't have any young people in them. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're unteachable, because we have to keep it the same. I don't need to learn anything new, so why are we changing it? But they're also dying. That They are, and that's one of the things COVID has shown us. How many churches had people that were there because that's just, we always went there, and then they, shut, they had to shut the doors, and... They moved on or not come back as they've opened because why, why bother? It's the same thing every week. Yeah. Sunday after Sunday, yeah. service after service, year after year. Why bother? We'd rather stay home and sleep in. Yeah, I could stay home and sleep in. We changed it. The COVID broke their pattern, and now they're, they're seeing it going, eh, it's not really, I don't need to go. And so we're seeing a lot of these types of churches just, you know, they're just dying away. away. But you still need the fellowship that comes from... Sure, from but they find fellowship in other places. Work, community groups, whatever. But not church. Well, they don't, they don't need it. They don't see it as, a, as something they should do, which is the breakdown of your community, which is all where Chris is going with his sermon series, is that we have lost a sense of community in America. We've lost it in the, the, a lot of the church has lost the sense of community. Um, and we've replaced it with, well, I just need to get, you know, as long as I hear a sermon on a Sunday, I can listen to it on the radio, the TV, whatever, and I'm all good. I got my, I got my Jesus for the week. <laughs> yep. Because we don't think we, we, we're not interested in community. How many people know their neighbors? Yeah, I mean, most, most people move in and they, they never meet their neighbors. They're not interested. Yeah, it's just the If I remember what their names are. <laughs> Do you recognize them when you see them? Right. My neighbors have been the same for 50 years. So I don't well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay, so here we are. Fleeting, the fleeting nature of power is that we move from the eyes, yeah, wise young person wise young king to the old foolish ruler because power is fleeting the nature of it is is that we come in with the new ideas but the new ideas become the old ideas and we get set in our ways power is fleeting that's what that's what solomon is trying to communicate here there's always an old foolish king and there's always the wise young guy coming up and the cycle just keeps repeating because the young wise guy Get becomes the old foolish guy who is replaced by a young wise guy. A wise guy? Yeah, a wise guy. <laughs> Put the emphasis on a different syllable. <laughs> and it's, it, it just constantly happens, this whole cycle. And so he says, surely this is also vanity. Striving after the way. You, you, you can't ever get somebody that's just constantly the wise, young, wise ruler. Comment, question. I think we've done a fairly good job of moving on here. 
you know, be, be integrating newer ideas. I can say that I've been here. <laughs> You've been here a long time? Since 83, so. I've only been here now five years. It'll be six in February. Yeah. It's, just, yeah, it's like, wow, six years already? Like, wow. Yeah, seeing as how Chris has been here since like the mid 80s. Yeah, right. You know, like, He's a year before that is so me. Unusual. Yeah. That's yeah, an incredible number that he's been here. Yeah. yeah. And we're not an old dead church. It's a, it's yeah, a tribute yeah. to him and the Absolutely. leadership that has yep. gone, yep. come and gone. All right, let's uh, move along. Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Somebody read that for us. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It seems like we've shifted topics, but again, I'll remind us that this is, this is um, the search for wisdom that Solomon is doing. And he's describing um, what, he, what next he thought of in his search for wisdom, which the conclusion comes at the end. Um, so it's, he's really not just all of a sudden jumping topics because his main topic is the search for what is wisdom. Um, and so we look at this, and he changes, and he's talking about uh, coming to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. Uh, and this is, this is a tough one. We've talked about when leading, so that being in charge, but now we're talking about we're in worshiping, and this is, this is wisdom for the individual. If you're in a, eventually everybody ends up in a leadership position. It's inevitable, whether it be a team at work, uh, your family, just, uh, you know, what, whatever. Everybody eventually ends up having to be somebody in charge of something. It may just be a party. <laughs> but you end up being in charge, and, and so that's why it's important. But when we go worshiping, this is everybody. We're all supposed to worship. And this is, um, this is an advice. This isn't the, uh, you know, well, you know, maybe this is a good idea. This, Solomon is laying down what is required. Now remember, he's basing this on the law. God told them exactly how to worship him, what he wanted. And one of the things that we see in Israel is that they didn't do it the way God wanted most of the time. They did it the way they wanted to do it rather than doing it God's way. And it always led to trouble for them. And Solomon is trying to offer teaching on this. So this is, he's tried other methods. There, he's looked at the experiments. He's looking historically. Now remember, this is Solomon. Before him was David. And people worship God well under David. And before him was Saul. Saul. Did they worship God well under Saul? No. No. And before Saul was the Judges. The, yeah, the book of Judges. Which if you read the book of Judges, and we've done it uh, a while back, it was chaos. Um, if you read the book of Judges, it's absolutely horrific. The things they did, and they began mixing worship of God with the worship of idols, um, and, and all the crazy things that went on, especially in the second half of the book of Judges, where uh, they, they were just doing, they, they were absolutely horrific with it. And Solomon's looking back at the history and saying, no, this is what has to, he says, guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, that's, uh, that, I mean, that's severe. Guard your steps. When worshiping, this is the key. 
the key to worshiping God, whether it was in the Old Testament or whether it's now in the New Testament, the key to worshiping God is heart of obedience. We see this even with Jesus himself. People coming to him and asking, how do I get into heaven? Sell everything you have and follow me. Oh, I can't do that. It's a matter of obedience. Will you do what God is asking you to do? We see it over and over again. Jesus having encounters with people. And he tells them, this is what you need to do. And they don't listen. And then usually the, the, after they go away, he tells his disciples it's easier for a, uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven or one of those. And he gives a whole dis discourse on why people don't do it. It's because of an issue of obedience. In their hearts, they don't want to obey God. They want window dressing for God. That was the whole problem with the Pharisees, right? They had the right robes, the right length tassels, the big phylacteries. They go out there, get the mint, and make sure, yep, let's see, one, two, three. Oh, there you go. That's, you know, my tithe of mint, count out those leaves, take them to the temple. Here you go. Here's my mint tithe. They did the window dressings. And what did, what did Jesus tell them over and over again? It was the problem in their heart. They weren't doing it for God. They were doing it for themselves. A heart of obedience. A heart of obedience that we want. That's what we see in David. Did David do everything he was supposed to do? No. No. Let's face it. David screwed up. More than one occasion. It was royal mess. Uh, with Bathsheba, and when he counted the army, I mean, thousands of people died in plague because of what he did. But where was David's heart? After God. It was after God. It was obeying. It was doing what God wanted. Did he mess up? Yeah. But his heart was focused on God, whereas others look like they're doing everything God wants, but there's nothing in the heart. And then they're going to be judged based on what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. That's why the whole thing about, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And that uh, God says, Jesus tells them that I'm going to judge the heart, not the what they did and, and all that. There's just so much window dressing, in, I think, in our world today. They look like they are good people. We do it with politicians. You know, there's an expectation. And so they meet the expectation. They, they show up to churches. How many of them actually believe anything that's going on? <laughs> but we expect our leaders to be religious. We don't care what church they go to. Oh, yeah, they're, see, they're, they're good Christian whatever, or good Catholic. They go to mass. They show up at whatever church in downtown D.C. most Sundays. Yep, they painted that. What's in their hearts? Let's face it. We, we know what's been in some of these guys' hearts. Yeah, because we've seen them on the manifest for a certain island. We've seen them uh, in the black books of certain madams. Uh, some of them have actually been caught. Uh, we, we know this. And it's because what's in their heart. It's not a heart of obedience. It's all window dressing. We've got, we, we see it in pastors. We, we see it in employers. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to take care of you. And they talk real big, and then you get hired, and you start actually seeing what's going on in the company, and you find out that he's embezzled all the money. Mm -hmm. uh, WorldCom, you guys are old enough to remember WorldCom. Uh, who was the other one? Enron. Where'd, all the, where'd yeah. all the pension plans go? Bernie. Bernie, Mandel. Yeah, you guys are old enough. You remember these things. They look like good, I mean, they showed up on covers of Time and Business Week and all that. These are the guys to model your business after. Really? Not. There was a problem <laughs> with a heart of obedience, wasn't there? Then he goes on and he, and he talks about meaningless rituals. Meaningless rituals. 
And we get caught up in those. Or we get, we get caught up expecting others to get to be doing that. I don't know how many times I, I, I've heard from people complain that I don't get up early and spend, you know, an hour or two in prayer in the mornings. I am not a morning person. I don't get up early. I don't do well. I'm not, you know, because somebody read George Fuller and he'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and pray till six and then he would have his breakfast and, and all that. And they, they get this idea that that's the way pastors are supposed to be, really. Look, I'm not the guy you want to call at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm not functioning. But if you need me at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, I'm your guy. Because I'm still up most of the time. I, I don't go to bed until late. I'm a late night guy. I'm a night owl. I function well at night. Um, you know, when I worked with teenagers and all that, we would do the overnighters. Yeah. Uh, you know, game nights and whatnot. And I'd just sit there with my cup of coffee all night with the kids. No problem. And then the other youth leader would come in in the morning. We would do breakfast, and I'd go home and go to bed. And he would take care. He'd do the next the, the day show. I'm an all-nighter guy. Why do we have to, you know, the, the, these meaningless rituals? You need to do these things this way. But why? I'm, am I not my own person? Yeah. Does God expect all of us to be the same way? No. Just because somebody did it once that way and they were, they, they, everything turned out really great for them, does that mean everybody's got to do it as a fact? No, we all have our different strengths. Sure, sure. Yeah, one body, many parts. And, and that's yeah. it. Look at Steve. He's 50 years old, still doing youth. He has no desire to do more than the youth group. <laughs> he loves it. He doesn't come into the office most days. He's not riding he's his bike. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's riding his bike from school to school. He, that man is so busy with the teens, he goes to at least one event for every kid in the youth group, and there are more than 60 at, at the schools. And he rides to the schools. He's there to cheer on them on, whether it's football, soccer, tiddly wings, chess club. He's there. He goes to the events. He has, he has 90 events on the calendar for this coming year. 90 events. Guys, 50. See, and, and we look at it and we go, we want young people, we want a young minister for the youth group, really? They're busy trying to date a gal and get married, have young children. They don't have time for 90 events. With the teens, you get an old guy who, who, that's his whole thing. Yeah, it's a whole different, he's got the time, doesn't he? He's got the energy, too. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He really does. But we're, we're all different, as you said. Different parts of one body. We're gifted and designed differently. We're not all designed the same. I'm not a morning person, but man, at, at night, whatever, I'm good. Chris is more of a morning person. He is. I very rarely ever beat him in the office. Yeah. Is that, is that a goal in, of yours? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no. Actually, it's usually it's, it's, it's a joke. Like when my daughter was didn't have her driver's license but was working for Dunkin' Donuts, she would do the more have to do the morning, and I would get here before him. It was the joke. Oh, you beat you know I would beat him in because she would have to be there like five o'clock in the morning to do the donuts. Mm -hmm. Your favorite time of day. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Look, I do it, but I don't love it. But we have, we develop meaningless rituals, and they become, good things become rituals. And that's something we need to realize, is that as we do stuff, and we find out that it works, and I don't, however you define that. So maybe you were up early praying one morning, and then you got a promotion when you got to work that you didn't know you were going to get. So like, oh, that's what I need to do. Well, now it became a meaningless ritual rather than that. Fasting. We turn it into a meaningless ritual instead of what it's supposed to be. A lot of these things become meaningless rituals in our lives. And this is what he tells us. Solomon reminds us that our prayers should always focus on God and not ourselves. He says, therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. We get this idea that we just keep praying. Jesus talked about the repetitive babble of the idolaters. That they, 
do the same prayer. I don't know if you've ever been to um, like a temple uh, for Buddha or any of those shrines. They have prescribed prayers. And you light your incense and you go kneel with the little thing in front of you and you do your, you, you say whatever it is and they do it multiple times a day and then they leave it there and all that. It's the same thing over and over. They chant in the evening and it's just this wearying on the ears, God says. It, and we do it as Christians. We, we create little prayers that we, we, we say all the time over and over. They don't have any more meaning to them, do they? It should be about God. It shouldn't be a mantra that we just say, a litany. Um, we should be thinking about what we're saying to God when we're talking. It's a conversation. We, we get the idea that prayer is some sort of mystical thing, and if we just say it all right and often enough, ooh, things happen, right? <laughs> but it's a conversation with God, and when you have a conversation, sometimes you got to stop and listen. I'm guilty of that one. I like to talk. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, how many of us get in the habit of ending a prayer in Jesus' name, amen? Yeah. It's like that tagline that's going to make everything before perfect. Right, and we we say amen, and then we we'll run off and do whatever it is we're going to do, and it's like it was a conversation. It's like when you had the little kids, and they run in, and it's and they're gone. It's like okay, bye. You know, they come, they'll ask 100,000 questions and you don't even get the chance to answer one of them or ask a question to understand what they were trying to tell you and they're gone again. We do the same thing to God. Here's my prayer, blah, 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 and I'm off with the rest of my day instead of sitting there and waiting to hear from him in whatever manner he wishes to manifest his side of the conversation because it is a conversation. I think we forget that. It has become a meaningless ritual. Oh, got to pray before I go to bed. Got to pray before the meal. Got to pray, insert wherever it is that you do it. And it's become a meaningless ritual. He says, the fool's voice with many words. I think we've become the fool. Comments, questions. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 7. Andrew, uh, on um, verse 3, where it talks about a dream comes when there are many cares. Do you just think that's the burden of life? The many cares? Um, and then it says, in many words, mark the speech of a fool. Yeah, it's. I, I don't know what he's talking about with the dream. I don't either, but I'm curious. Because, well, it says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It's the negative, whatever it is. So the, the dream is part of the negative side to his, because it's yeah. a, a poetic form. Okay. Here's the positives, here's the negatives. So it's part of. Yeah, therefore let your words be few. That's the that's the positive, that's true, and then here's the reverse of it. So this is the inverse of few words. Okay. Isn't that also in Proverbs? I, I forget where, but uh, a, a a wise man listens while a fool speaks. Yeah, we see that we see that often in Proverbs. I could have I, when I was reading this week. It was there was so many proverbs with it. I could we could have pulled in so many, but it would have gotten burdensome <laughs> to, for our time. Would it become meaningless? Yeah. <laughs> there, well, there are so it's many. Cool. Exactly, they, they become meaningless. You'd all be going just glazed over. <laughs> okay, move on. Move on. All right, five, four through seven. Thank you. 
When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one who, God is the one you must fear. There's your dreams again. Yeah, I'm just thinking the same thing. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's in a negative context. Okay. When you vow a vow, we make vows nowadays. A few. Marriage. Marriage. A few. Court. Court. Yeah, last week we had a baby dedication, didn't we? It's a vow. In the Old Testament, you would make a vow. You would go to the tabernacle, to a priest, state your vow, pay the fee, and when the time came, you would be responsible. Usually it was a monetary thing, or sheep, or, or some such, because you were seeking the favor of God. You would make a vow to him because you were hoping for a good harvest. Or you were hoping for uh, your firstborn child would be a male. Or some such. So you would go and it would be with prayer and a vow that you would make to God if certain things transpired, then you would do certain things. We still do that, don't we? We do it mostly in our heads. Nowadays, we don't go to the tabernacle or the temple or we don't come to the church and, and tell one of the pastors that you want to make a vow to God that if such and such. But we do it in our heads, don't we? We come up for promotion. Oh, God, just give me that. Give me that promotion and I'll go to church more often or I'll tithe more or sometimes it's a foolish vow. We speed past the cop. Oh God, don't let him get me. <laughs> I'll do better next time. Yeah, right? you press down the accelerator, right? Yeah. Press, yeah. But we, we do. We make foolish vows to God. They're mostly in our head. There's a lot of vows after 911. Yes, there were. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a vow in your youth when you were young, foolish, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna do this for God. And you never did it. You never even pursued it. Then there's marriage vows, too. There's marriage vows. I'm thinking of people walking the aisle because, you know, back in the day, you'd bring a missionary in from Africa and he'd show his slideshow and all that. And, you know, we need more workers and all this. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, I would love to do that. Maybe you were a teen and you saw him. call me to Africa. Yeah, and you go up, you walk the aisle. I'm going to do this and all that. And then, you know, Monday you go back to school and, they talk you into, you want an engineering degree so you can make money and, and all that, and you forget. You said you were willing to go. You never pursued it. And then you probably could have pursued it and done a lot of good with that engineering yeah. degree. When promising, and I want to emphasize this, I didn't say when making a vow, because we don't really think of it in terms of us. Well, I'm talking about promises. When you promise something, whether it to be your boss, your neighbor, a friend, your children, how often do we just break them? What is our <coughs> word worth to people? I don't know how many times I pro we approach people and say, hey, we need help in this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I'm interested in that. Let me get back to you. Yeah. And never hear from them again. We, we don't do that. Go ahead, Trish. I was just going to say, I was raised that your word is your honor. Yeah. Like what you say, you have to do it. My father used to tell us that your name is the only thing that matters because it follows you ever. You can't get away from it. Um, but we make promises all the time. See, now we're, we're remembering. Because this isn't just about to God. This is Because if we make the promise... It's 
Um, no, I just lost the word. You make a promise to somebody else, it is already understood that you've made it before God. That's what, that's what lends the power to a promise. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. And we don't say it anymore, but in the old days, the medieval days, before God. So help me God. So help me yeah. But that's, it's implied. That's the word I was trying to think of. It's implied. And then really, in the pagan days, you would swear the oath or the promise before the spirits, the earth, the water, and the trees. Because they were all nature. They were there. They were eternal in their minds. And so you would swear this upon the... The very land, the kings would swear on their, on the very ground that, that they would do whatever it was they said. But in the Christian era, we it's assumed that we're making this promise, swearing it before God, that yeah, I'll do that. I promise I'll do that. And we expect that person to do it because they said they would. We, loan, we lend weight to it through God. Fulfilling vows made to God without delay is important. That's what Solomon is telling us, that, that we need to do this without, we, we can't piddle-paddle around. When we make promises, whether it's a vow that He's talking about going to the tabernacle and swearing it out. Or any promise that we make because we, what are we now as Christians, believers? Jesus said we are a priesthood. Yeah. Where's the temple? Right here. It's in us. So do we need to go somewhere to make the promise? What happens? No, it means that when we make the promise with the Holy Spirit in us, we are, we are saying this is... Do you see what I'm saying? This is serious business. We're not, we, we're, yeah, there's not the ritual of going somewhere and doing it because we don't need that. It's in us already. The Holy Spirit's been put in us. We have God in us. It's Christ in us. And therefore, when we make a vow, he's in it. He's involved and we're making it with him and his knowledge. And he's part of the whole thing. Uh, are we keeping those promises? Are we fulfilling them? Or are we just making them in, in because well, it sounds nice to whoever we're talking to? And we don't uh, really have any intention of keeping that vow. It sounds good to say it. Yeah. Solomon tells us it's better not to vow than not keep it. Don't make any statement. We live in a world where the promise has no meaning anymore. Because we've made so many and not kept. I mean, come on. Who actually believes anything a politician says during an <laughs> election cycle? I'm going to do... Put every year. We always have to do it. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. It's irrelevant. We don't care. Solomon says, no. No, this, this is the wrong... Our world has perverted it to such a degree that, that we now have to have contracts iron-clad pieces of paper stipulating every little thing. I mean, have you seen some of these contracts? Yeah. I'm not talking about, like, user agreements <laughs> from Microsoft. <laughs> I'm talking about, like, business contracts. My brother works in property, and when they do a building and all that, the pile of paper required for each of the contractors and stuff of what they're going to do, when it's due, how much they'll be paid. I mean, it is... Wow. I mean, we wonder why lawyers are so expensive to make those things as ironclad as possible so they can't wiggle their way out. And then you sign it. Because our vows, our promises have become nothing. That's why we have so much lawyers and uh, court systems and all that now, because our word means nothing. It used to be. A handshake. Neighbors would, would agree on something and they would do it. They would stick to it. But there's also more than that. We don't take personal responsibility, do we? 
We don't believe it's on me. But why is that? Why have we become that way? We've gotten away with it for so many years. Okay, we've gotten away with it, that's true. There's even a more insidious reason. And yes, it's insidious. Because they're not kept so much, it's not expected? No, we don't fear God. We do not fear God. So we're willing to take his name in vain <coughs> when we make a promise that we don't intend to keep. That's what you're doing. You're taking his name in vain. I promise I'll do that. It's implied, so help me God. But God isn't anybody important. So you're taking his name in vain. You're, you're lying on his name. You're using it vainly. Solomon says, don't do it. Don't do it. For there is, this is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. What does the expectation of keeping a vow made to God teach us about the very nature of worship? When we make a promise... character of God promises what is it how does it relate to the character of God well God keeps his promises so we should too yeah the very nature of God is that he keeps his promises over and 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 over for thousands of years through the Old Testament God kept his promise he would make agreements with Israel with Abraham Jacob Isaac all of them over and over again. And God would keep his side of the bargain because that's his nature. We know the nature of God because we see it. Even when we don't keep our side, he still keeps his side of the bargain. If we're going to worship him and we have to worship him in a manner that's pleasing to him, if he is displeased because we don't keep our promises, then how can we worship him? His character calls that sin, doesn't it? We can't worship in sin, can we? Don't make promises that you don't have any intention of keeping. If you make promises, do everything in your power to keep them. Because that's the nature of God. Solomon is, is, is building... To, this idea that the only thing that matters in life is our connection and relationship to God. And here it is, as we're looking at this. When we lead, we need to be teachable. We need to understand and look to him and to wise counsel because he doesn't just speak to us directly. Sometimes he speaks through other people. When we worship, we need to do it with a, with a clean heart. We need to come to him in our heart of obedience, which means when we make promises, we need to keep them because that's a heart of obedience. See, it all comes together, doesn't it? Wow. All that. Impressive, isn't it? God, his character is important to us. Leading leaders must be willing to listen to wise counsel when leading. Second, we are to worship God in reverent obedience. That's our worship. Not singing songs and all that. That's the window dressing. In our hearts, if we're not reverently obedient, we're not worshiping. I don't care how beautiful your voice is how much money you put in the coffers or whatever, that's where it's happening. And lastly, we should carefully weigh the promises we make to God and others, 
knowing they will be expected to be to keep any promise made. If you're making one, plan to keep it. Otherwise, you're, God's not pleased because his nature is a promise keeper. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> dire warnings from Solomon reminding us of who you are because that's who we answer to. That's who we worship. That's who we fear. Lord, help us this week as we go to learn to worship you in the manner that is pleasing to you. This idea of keeping promises and being obedient is so important. In Jesus' name we pray.